Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability, Design the Future. We're back. It's great to be with you. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah. Oh, well, you know, we're rounding out the end of 2020. So I feel like everybody is at least feeling that sense of good riddance. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, like seeing all of the advertising and things for the end of this year. Like I want I want everyone to just have that same tone. I want every commercial to be like, thank God we're getting out of this. You know, like it's not to say that we are actually getting out of this, that we have a long way to go, but just to, to you know, kick 2020 to the curb, it feels like a really. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> feels well, like a, and to, yeah, start getting, to start getting working on, we have a lot of work ahead, right? So it feels like yeah. there's, there's so many things um, where, uh, I don't know, we're going to be able to ramp up some progress and turn some corners and not just on COVID, um, but on other things too. So I think that's part of my excitement for the new year, for sure. Yeah, totally. I actually, I just got off of a webinar that ULI gave about the Biden climate plan, where they sort of, it was Billy Grayson from ULI gave a bit of an overview about the various priorities that the Biden administration has on climate and then sort of talked for a second about, you know, which ones relate to real estate. So like stuff I've been thinking about and working on for a while, but what he then did had a great panel, um, including Diane Hoskins from Gensler, oh, uh, talking about like, what does this all mean? And the, the thing that I thought was so exciting about that, that conversation was more that the, the panelists and Billy as well had less of a tone of like, what are the policy priorities of the Biden administration and like which bills might get passed and which executive orders might we expect to see? It was a little bit more like, a, hey, climate is an urgent problem that this administration is going to, con going to consider a top priority. So all, you know, many cabinet leader, many of the different department leaders, members of the cabinet are turning out to be people who have climate agendas. It, we're hearing about how pervasive it's going to be. So it was kind of this like, let's not think about this in the limited way of saying what policies might we expect to see, but let's just say that we are now going to have leadership in at the federal level in our country that just cares a lot about climate and is dedicated to acting on it in a variety of different ways. Like it was a sort of more of a cultural shift point um, that was refreshing, you know, because I feel like at least from the dialogue we had, it was, you know, people are expecting like a brand new day and people are yeah. not expecting. Well, I think it is thing. really promising to see the appointments, you know, as they've been coming through and, and to, I mean, it makes me excited about what the Department of Transportation is going to do if, if they're mm -hmm. able to actually think about energy and climate as part of their, how they see the world, right? Like that'll yeah. be new. That will be something new that we haven't had, right? Yeah, now. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I'm very excited. We just found out last night that Gina McCarthy is going to be yep. serving in a White House climate advisor role. Yep. She is just a complete badass in every way. I'm such a fan of her. Yes. way of shaking people out of their <laughs> complacency. She's she's going to be great. And then also Jennifer Granholm, 
leading the Department of Energy. I guess that's, is that official official? Who knows? By the time we broadcast, maybe people will be like, that didn't happen, silly, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, those have been announced, of course. They have? Yeah. Okay, good. They all, yeah. these will all be subject to various approvals and such things. Right. Uh, but those yeah. are reasons for optimism. And you know, I love to include reasons for optimism in my in my little spiel on this show. Yep. Maybe it's my Midwestern roots, but there's a lot of those and, you know, with those appointments and um, and other things, other conversations that continue to go on, I, including, you know, increasing calls for linking climate um, with health in a more unified way and what we're doing at the government level around that. There was an article in Scientific American, I think that actually um, you and our guest called this to my attention last week. Um, it was by Howard Frumkin and Richard Jackson, and it was about you know, saying that we need a National Institute of Climate Change and Health. I mean, really making a more clear link between these topics so that the way yeah. that we fund all the funding that goes through these channels can be better dedicated to the connections there. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think it's so important. And that's sort of part of what we're seeing with the cabinet appointments, too. Yes, it is. It's going to be exciting. And it definitely feels like we have, I mean, there's just people all over, all over the administration, people all over the country in every way that are bringing that sensibility of, of climate crisis, of health crisis into the ways in which you make decisions at the government level. So it's, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It's going to, it's going to be an interesting transition over the next few months, but it is actually speaking of that article, a very good way to introduce um, our guest for today, who I believe will talk more about uh, her thoughts about that article because she <laughs> definitely has them. So today we have Dr. Whitney Austin Gray with us. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you. Uh, we're so excited to have you. This is going to be a ton of fun. So um, Dr. Gray is the Senior VP of Research at the International Well-Building Institute also an adjunct professor at the Georgetown School of Urban and Regional Planning and the School of Nursing and Health Studies. She holds a PhD in public health from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and I have known Whitney for a number of years. I remember very distinctly when she walked into my life. Uh, for many of you, you may remember her walking into your life because she has an incredible presence. I don't like in my head, maybe she was wearing all pink, but probably that wasn't the case. Um, and just like is a powerhouse in every way. But Whitney was actually at the Center for the Built Environment where I was in grad school. She came to do a like a visiting scholarship there and was just a hilarious addition to our very nerdy community of like, you know, California hippies. Um, I remember that she bequeathed us a book of uh, the book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People when we left and everyone was like, ooh, good point, good point. You know, it's like very, <laughs> very strategic mind in every way. Um, so we're super happy to have you any one of the reasons that in particular people like Whitney are important, but you know, Whitney in particular has been a real influence for me is that you came from this world of public health into the realm of real estate. And I've always found that to be a really important voice because we learn so much from people who think differently than we do about buildings and about like, you know, that connection between health and buildings. It's just been a very profound a contribution, I think, to the to to what we do. Um, so, Whitney, I'm hoping you can share with us a little bit about how you got 
interested in buildings from the public health angle. Just tell us, tell us what your path has been and what made you show up where you did. Well, thank you, Lindsay. It's an honor to be here and just have this forum for really provoking powerful thoughts. So I am definitely a designer groupie. You know, the band groupies that follow the bands everywhere. Um, they don't actually know how to play the music, but they go to all the shows. So early on for me, being around designers and their way of thinking was just energy. You know, coming from the field of public health, I'd gotten my undergrad at Johns Hopkins and returned to do my PhD in health policy. And I was, I was all set, right? Like I, I, you know, I was on a path that my advisors approved of and all the pieces were in place. And I was going to study intimate partner violence. And I'd come from Japan and South Africa doing that research. And then one day my advisor, uh, and she does, she does take the credit for all of this and the responsibility showed a documentary called The Next Industrial Revolution. And in it, Susan Sarandon featured McDonough's work at Herman Miller and talked about them pursuing a lead building and used the term that they were more productive inside the building as a result. And then all the pieces for me fit into place around why I love design is because they looked at green building solutions as a way to create a better environment for everyone's health and well-being and productivity. And I was coming from a world in public health where everything is about problems. We always start every statement with the public health problem, the risk and protective factors, the magnitude. And here people were about solution building and this idea that you, instead of trying to reduce out the problem and fix it, you could actually be solution builders. And designers are great thinkers. In fact, working with many designers today, you know, is humbling because although we're seeing such tragedy and such constraint and such, such hurt, I think, globally around dealing with this pandemic, you also see this creative, incredible group of leaders say we could do better. And historically, something we know about design and public health is that designers respond to public health issues, particularly around pandemics. We reshaped our cities, you know, based off the 1918 Spanish flu. Um, we reshaped our cities after understanding even September 11th. You know, there are issues from public health that shape design. So with all that said is that I was really inspired starting public health with this idea that designers are designing out the problem and designing the solution was the way forward. Green buildings sparked that and became the path of trying to understand, could this be a way to transform the market to demand healthier places for all? And then I get to hang out with great folks like yourself and be able to think creatively about design strategies. Yay. I didn't know that fact about you, that you had originally started off thinking about like, like in a completely different realm of public health. That's super fascinating. And I'm very, um, very glad that your advisor tipped you off to being uh, <laughs> in our little world. And it resonates too. I feel like a lot of what I got into, I was coming at it from the environmental side, but I got drawn into the world of buildings because it seemed like this solution-oriented space that you could really create and feel positive about. Um, so maybe that's one of the reasons we get along so well. Um, but also amongst speaking many, of getting yeah. along, oh my God, amongst many, amongst many things, um, enjoying fine wine, for example. So oh, let's yeah. talk about, about that aspect, actually, of just the, the community. I, I'm curious what you can maybe reflect back to us 
about what it's like to be a public health person in a community of building professionals. What do you notice about this community, given your lens of uh, looking at the problems that we face? It's a lot of fun working in the design community. I mean, they let me draw on the walls. <laughs> they let me think about issues in a different way. And I, honestly, they, they keep me on my toes. So when I was leading research with Canon Design, I still remember uh, Mike Puxta at the time who I was working with, he said to me, you know, Whitney, of course I read every email memo that you send me, but if you could draw it, it'd be more likely that I would read it. And in a funny way, that was sort of a moment of thinking, yeah, we literally have to translate how we understand the science and research of public health into design every day and, and be really humbled in the process. Uh, something that I think has been extremely difficult, but a powerful strategy for me is being able to be in a boardroom of very influential leaders and say very loudly, um, I don't understand. I don't understand your acronym. I don't understand exactly how you're framing that. Can you please interpret this a different way? I come from a different discipline. And I really, my students at Georgetown, I really encourage them to get comfortable saying, I don't know. That is one of the more powerful things you can say. You come prepared, you know what you know, but if you're working across disciplines, just saying, I don't know, can you explain it, uh, is really powerful. I've been in boardrooms with large hospital design projects where you saw the chief medical officer and chief nursing officer look at the design team and they're using you know, their own right vocabulary. And I think, why aren't they just asking the questions they wanna ask? They don't wanna look a certain way in front of their peers and the whole meeting ends, and I don't think we got down to some of the core questions like, how will your design improve my ability to run a successful hospital and improve the life of the patients and my staff? Um, those are questions we just have to ask. We'd be okay to say, I don't know in boardrooms. And finally, I would say that design, amongst many things I've learned, is early on in my career, I, I had teams come to me to say, okay, so we're going to have this really large hospital project. And if you can just um, help us understand how they can do health-centered design. And that was a concept I was working on at the time, sort of moved beyond human-centered design because I, I wanted to incorporate environment in and not focus only on humans. And so I was working in this health-centered design concept at Canon Design. And they would say, uh, yeah, can you just, just tell me how this large project's going to incorporate that? And Whitney Brain just exploded, right? I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna need a year you know, to figure out all the intricacies and details. Let me do my full research and systematic literature review. And basically they were like, yeah, but I need that yesterday in like a two by two infographic, if that's okay. And, you know, it's humbling, but it's this idea that if you really want to make a difference in the knowledge we have of public health and translating it into practice, you have to be able to say, I don't know. You have to be able to speak their language. You have to be able to draw on walls um, to be able to convey that. And so it's really forced me to, in a very humbling way, say, I don't want to show up to this meeting showing people what I know. I want to better translate what I know faster so that people can actually build healthy places because a research report on the shelf is not going to help a person's life. But the faces and names of people in buildings that I've been part of supporting their healthy design strategies uh, really does. That is amazing. Um, Whitney, I, I love that 
all aspects of those stories that you were just telling because I mean I'm a communications person so to me what you were talking about is really the communications value of what that cross-pollination is like right I mean and I think what many designers love the chance to to work with people in other fields but it does require a it puts a different lens on on the communication piece and what you were just describing is exactly that that's so interesting well and so as a public health professional i wondered if you could talk a little bit about um how do you think COVID is changing perspectives on the work that you do so we knew this pandemic was coming in public health we didn't know the name didn't know the exact year and we knew how fast it could spread so healthy buildings is not a new concept this goes back you know millennial and understanding that buildings can either harm you or help you they can protect you right uh, they can prevent diseases and illness this is not a new concept but i think we forgot about it the last <sighs> living relatives that have institutional memory of an epidemic is most likely the polio vaccine and polio, I should say, which was water, you know, waterborne, but at the time really attacked children in particular, and they did not understand it. And there was just great fear. And as a result, we better, you know, we better understood infectious disease we thought about how the behavior that you have affects others around you. You, you realize that everyone from, you know, the front door man or woman to the CEO had impact on the spread of disease. And I think we forgot about that. We thought now we're in an era of chronic disease. I don't remember what infectious disease truly looks like on that large of a scale in industrialized countries. And so this became the era of your fat, your fault. And this was when we study obesity, we call it victim blaming. And I think it's horrible. It's this idea that, oh, your behavior caused your situation and I have nothing to do with it. Well, you do. Um, and a lot of those behaviors and access to healthy food and how people move, I mean, those things are established almost from the moment they're born at times and the cities and buildings that we design for people. But we forgot that we're all interconnected. We forgot that buildings can protect us. It was more, what can they do for me and it was more this individual focus and i i deeply hope that we learn in the 1950s urban planning and public health were were still really good friends i like to think of them like they dated in high school you know and things were going really well but the 1950s again here comes polio but in this situation it was a vaccine but other pharmaceuticals came online to fix people's problems and the argument is we lost sight of the connection between planning and public health, is that instead of focusing on the community and the urban or building scale, we started focusing on the individual scale, the fix-it mentality. If you're familiar with whole person health, um, the sort of other side of that is the reductionist or biomedical model. And in doing so, tried to figure out what was wrong and let's get a drug to fix it. Okay, so all this happens and we see a split. And this has been argued by many scholars to say really around the 1950s or so, um, planning and public health sort of broke up. It's like we went to college, you know, and we started dating other people. Um, but long behold, uh, really after 2000, I like to say that we came back together and we're gonna get married. We're in this together. People started understanding again that to solve public health problems, you have to look at the building, at the community scale 
at the urban scale, you can't just focus on individual fixing and you can't just focus on individual blaming. So I deeply hope people remember that we are all interconnected and that our health and our behavior influences others in this. And that if we do it right, that we actually create environments that prevent us um, from disease, that protect us. And I will add, make us more resilient. The term resilience is very powerful to me because resiliency doesn't mean avoidance. It means that when stressors occur to the system is that you rebound faster. And that is my hope is that we create resilient places for all moving forward. And we do not forget how interconnected um, our community's health is. That's really powerful. And I think, I mean, certainly you're involved in academia, so, but it's also true in the professional world. Knowledge is so siloed in our culture that it's very hard to, I think sometimes hard to make those connections and to teach those connections and all of those things. So it's great to hear that. And I love your metaphor <laughs> that they're back together and they got married and awesome. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. Whitney, I wanted to ask, we, we like to ask our guests what they are most proud of accomplishing. This could be something in your work life, but it could be more personal, like mentoring people or learning how to act like a boss or, or anything. I mean, really just something you're proud of in your work life. Yeah, I love this question. And it would <laughs> be so great to be like, oh, my 10 books. Um, <laughs> I don't have 10 books. And I love the idea that I would write a book on maternity leave, but we could probably explore on a different um, podcast how that wasn't exactly easy. So maybe that book is coming. But in the end of the day, the thing that I'm proudest of is continuing to believe in the power of place in benefiting people's lives. There were so many times that, you know, you talk about the hardest times don't define us, they refine us. Early on at Hopkins, when I was pushing this in my dissertation, I had several advisors at the time say, don't do this. There's no design school here. I don't know why you're working with architects. Um, the research is not there on green buildings. Like you just wanna get out. You know, don't try to launch your own study. These were the same advisors years later that were like, we'd love to have you come in and talk about being so innovative in the field of green building design and health. And people then wrote to me and said, I remember when they didn't believe that. I remember losing my first job out of grad school and being just totally devastated. You know, like, oh my God, I, I just put everything into believing that this was really powerful space of research and I just lost it all, you know? And, and they'd promised lots of things. It was the Innovation Institute and just budgeting, it shifted and it was just reality. But did that ever define me? You know, was that not a moment of being like management consulting or I'm gonna keep at it, right? And, and so I think of those times when you're in a walk in a room of a thousand, two thousand, five thousand people and uh, they don't believe you. They don't, they're not on your side, right? They are gonna push back and the more the faster, the larger, the swifter we get at reaching status quo to create healthy places, those audiences will come with their doubts and their questions. And I think realizing um, how powerful this is and never giving up on that and finding your tribe. I, my God, it's like, it's lonely work. I think when you're trying to push for something, but when you find friends, uh, so Lindsay, I'm looking at you here that, that are hey. able to say to you, you know, connect with my tribe. Uh, so early on, part of the story of meeting Lindsay was that I called Berkeley and I was at Hopkins doing my work 
And there was no design school, as I said, there was no advisor being like, I do green buildings and health. No, no, definitely not. So it was a great public health school, but in many ways, it was just research that was just kind of coming online. And so I went out to Berkeley and I called them. And instead of asking if I could come, I think I said something like, um, I'll just like be there next month. Uh, is that okay? I'll just fund my way there. I just really need to work with you. And when I met Lindsay, um, I was not wearing pink, but for this story, sure, let's, let's add that in. Um, but <laughs> you said something along the lines after I introduced myself and said, oh, I'm coming from the School of Public Health. I really want to work on green building design and understand its impact on public health. You said something along the lines of, we've been waiting for you. Mm. And those are the moments that don't define us. They refine us. They help us understand that what we've been up to matters. And when we can connect those pieces, I think it cements the resolve that we have. But if you are isolated and you are alone in this, it feels overwhelming at times. And that's why I think what you're doing you know, on this podcast to just connect people and thinking is that you never know that student that wants to do this work that is being faced with what's the next job market can look like. Um, what advisor is going to believe in this work for me? Like who's actually going to support me? We really need to hear the message and support each other in doing that because my God, does that make a big difference? I don't know a leader a leader that I like right now that didn't, doesn't, that's a story that was like, so school was super easy and I got my dream job and everything worked out perfectly. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I like to joke that the day that we write our biographies is that no one likes the character that everything works perfectly for. I, I say that it's chapter five that always defines us, right? It's that chapter where things got really damn hard and you figure out if the character was able to make it through. Mm -hmm. And I think days where it's been hard, I say, oh, chapter eight's just around the corner. <laughs> so I think that our stories define us. And I think if anyone's out there in chapter five, you know, believe me, if you keep, if you keep pushing, I, chapter eight will be there. And I, and I really do believe that there is a good and powerful ending of this story. Whitney, I love that. And I, of course, love finding your tribe. And I think that rings so true to so many of the conversations we've had on this podcast all year. Um, it's really what, in some ways, the whole podcast is about. So thank you for mentioning it in such a specific way. So you're an educator, an adjunct professor at Georgetown, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why you take the time to do that work. Yeah, so building on my previous story was that when I was doing my PhD, I was fascinated in green buildings and health. I, I think we've established that. And I searched far and wide for someone, just someone that was doing this work as an advisor, just someone that would give me 20 minutes. That person eventually became Dr. Judy Heerwagen. She was featured in the documentary that I mentioned called The Next Industrial Revolution. She was the researcher that was documenting at Herb and Miller that they were able to show that a green building led to productivity gains in their workforce. And I, I stalked her, let's just be honest. I stalk a lot of people that I look up to and it's a friendly stalking, but it sort of starts with some emails and some follow-ups and then some conferences. And I'm like, I'm available, I'm available. Here I am front row, I have a question. And <laughs> Judy uh, was very kind and she met with me for 20 minutes. And that 20 minutes to her was probably just a part of a day where she was speaking to dozens and dozens of people. I don't even know if she remembers it, but that 20 minutes, changed my life. That 20 minutes is why I'm here talking to you today. And I always remind myself that I am never too busy for 20 minutes to talk to someone who
who wants to pursue this work. And the students are so much the future of a workforce we have to help support. Because if we look even at where the focus is for those over 60, over 50, over 40, over 30 in this movement, you know, we see that there's gaps. And it's really critical that we support students in doing this. And so that is why I do it. I do it for the 20 minutes that I hope, and I selfishly say this to all my students when I start the course, I say, I hope someone in this class, if not multiple people, go into this field. Um, that's why I'm, I'm hoping to share it this with you. And I think this year it was so defining because I, I teach at Georgetown and um, I'm a new mother. So I was actually just coming off maternity leave, trying to teach um, a three hour course in the evenings. And, you know, we didn't have answers to a lot of things this year. So the class is called, um, you know, planning in the built environment um, and public health. So planning for the planning for, for health in the built environment. And we didn't know what COVID was going to do. And so a lot of the lectures that I'd already had done, I had to redo, you know, and it was more like what's possible and advocating that each student not just submit a final paper, but submit a policy brief and actually go and deliver it to their legislators. So that's why I do it. I do it for the 20 minutes. I do it to hope to empower people to have a space to think about their role. And even if they're urban planner, sustainability expert, if they're a facility manager, or if they're, you know, whatever, in economics to, I can only imagine the different professions out there is that you can all be public health advocates, but people don't feel like they're empowered to have the voice in public health until someone kind of gives it to them. And public health people are problem solvers. And if we knew the answer, we'd have fixed it a while ago. So we solve problems that are messy and thorny and multiple layered, and we need all of our professionals to do it. And I think we need to be able to educate others and always give them those 20 minutes. And shout out Judy, if you're out there. Thank you. That's so fantastic. I love Judy and I love your story of that 20 minutes. That's terrific. Your class this past semester sounds incredible. I can't imagine how dynamic that must have felt. It's like in real time, you know, <laughs> really, um, that's amazing. So we want to ask if there's a project that you're working on right now that you would like our listeners to know about. Yes. So in the middle of January 13th, we will be releasing the global research agenda. And this is a document that summarizes the work of 20 research advisors at the International Wellbuilding Institute over the course of a year. And has it ever been a year? So you can imagine where we started and where we finished. And the agenda puts forward a real path for researchers to answer some hard questions that we need answered. Uh, it also really pushes industry to help us translate this into practice, and it highlights 12 impact topics. And those are not labeled research topics, you'll notice, they're labeled impact topics. Uh, they are timely and relevant, and we will be launching the first impact topic on March 4th as part of a webcast looking at climate change. And that means highlighting, catalyzing all of our research to date through the well building standard, through our ongoing research and academic partnerships, highlighting our research advisors globally on this very relevant and I know very close and near and dear topic um, to your heart. And so we're excited to move that forward. And I think really start 2021 with the power of having tools to share, particularly as we are seeing administration coming in and we need to reach out to leaders who might be shifting jobs right now to say, do you know about the research? 
Do you know about healthy buildings? Do you know what we could do? Do you know what a healthy organization looks like? Here's a path forward, here's a tool. Um, I think that's really important to move beyond talking into action. And I don't really wanna talk anymore. I, I, I don't wanna explain why. I wanna be in the how conversation. And I think the global research agenda moves us into that how conversation. That is awesome. Um, I, I, I'm excited for it. And I understand what you mean by like impact categories rather than sort of topic areas and things. So thank you for thank you for what it means to be focused on action and to <laughs> get it out there that way. I think the appetite for that is really strong right now, too. I think many people in many fields are really that exact statement that you just said, you know, enough talk. Um, they want to move forward and they want to help their elected officials move forward and they want to help, you know, how do we package what we know and put this into your hands and make it all actionable. I think that there's a real feeling like that across across the industry. And actually, so that leads me to a question um, I have for you about where where did you think we would be in 2020 as a as a movement or an industry, whichever way you you see sustainable buildings and healthy buildings? So I am excited that the majority of people I talk to, when I say green building, they nod their head or at least pretend to nod their head. They know what it is and they've heard of it. I'm disappointed they don't know what it means often, but then I'm also not surprised by that, that in some ways they don't need to understand exactly how the energy grid works to support the green buildings part of the solution. And we have to remember that. Um, that is the success of reaching status quo. I did not think coming off COVID that science would be given, <laughs> science was an opinion or an option in the populace that we deeply need to look at and confront. When we are looking at addressing and facing issues of climate change, issues around a pandemic, I am astounded that anyone thinks that science can be interpreted as opinion. Um, and it's particularly in this country, in the US, that we see that. There was a story that a fellow researcher told me um, out of ICEEE, and this is a group out of the Nordics that does air quality research. And they said, when we launched this first study, and this was years ago in Sweden, we needed, I don't know what it was, like a hundred households that we could measure the indoor air quality. And basically we knocked on the front door and people would let us come in and take air quality samples. And sometimes they would leave, they'd leave their kids with us. I mean, jokingly, right? But like they basically totally trusted the researchers in their home. They said the last phase was to go to the US and Texas and to go into hundred people's homes to conduct air quality samples. And they said, not only did they think this would take a week, they were three months in and only a matter of households. And they ended up going to the church and the church became the sort of trusted authority for the community to say, yes, let the research scientists in. I mean, that story kind of gives me chills to say, where, where is science? Where is the public's trust? When we say we're doing everything to address these huge issues of climate change and this pandemic, and we say, these are small things you can do and people think that that's an option. When we say these are things you can do to protect your health and the health of those that are vulnerable, people think that's an option. And we've lost this idea of the faith um, and belief in science. And so 
that is something that's not easy to look at. And going into 2021, rebuilding the trust and welcoming people into a conversation to not just trust science, but to really activate what we know in science and not wait or hold or ask that this is a political issue. I think we need to all play a part in inviting people in to reduce any political patina on this and rather to make it just the path forward for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is, I love that. Is that. A story. <laughs> yeah, and I was thinking about part of what you're saying there, which is like at the point that we don't trust scientists to come into our homes to do something like this, we start to get to the point where we literally can't solve problems at a at any scale. This, you know, like because we, like, how are you going to solve a problem if you can't trust somebody else to? help you solve that problem who might know more about the thing. You know, it's like a very, it's a very fundamental issue. But that's well, a mistrust I, yeah. of expertise in general, I think, not just mm -hmm. science. Oh, so I man. can, uh, I can add to that. So what's interesting is there was quite a bit of research, really, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars put forward um, to look at how to find the trusted authority for climate change. Who would be the translator? And mm -hmm. would, would this be, you know, the scientist PhD? Would this be the climate researcher? Would this be the sustainability expert? And early on, that research pointed to a trusted authority that people would turn to around climate change information was the meteorologist on your local news. And this was somewhat successful. I mean, they were able to show that they put out air quality warnings for certain days, particularly when we looked at like ozone or particulates being high and the meteorologist could come forward and say, today's a day that you probably shouldn't be running if you have cardiovascular risk or respiratory illnesses. And they became that sort of voice for people to understand the impacts of climate change on their daily life. I think we have to ask ourselves, who are those trusted authorities? Um, when we return to buildings, this idea that the facility manager has a greater um, power to prevent you from getting COVID than your physician. You know, that builds off a concept years ago from Howie Frumkin and, um, you know, Dick Jackson around the fact that sustainability leaders, architects, planners, engineers have a greater impact in the public's health than doctors. You know, so are these the trusted advisors? Who is your go-to? And so I think that kind of is something we all need to look at. And it might not be us. Right? It might be someone that we're surprised is the trusted authority that people turn to to understand um, how are places healthy and how are places sustainable and why is that important overall as a society to support? Yeah, totally. I, I, there's a lot in there, but I want to pull out something in particular that you know I would pull out on because it's I'm very excited about Howie Frumkin and Dick Jackson anytime they come up in conversation. I think it's related to like what I'm thinking about is how they were in that role more of identifying it from their generation. It was sort of identifying that there were these connections, that there were these problems to solve. It was an education thing. And they did that very well and shout out to, to them and to anyone else that knows them that wants to tell them that we're talking about them on our podcast because uh, we love them. And um, they've been, both of them have been a real inspiration in my career as well. So I want to ask you, it's sort of spinning out of that about, about generations of leadership and about what you think 
the challenges that is more unique to our generation. And I guess I'll just say for those that maybe haven't been listening to the podcast as much, like we're in that generation that is neither just emerging um, as professionals, nor are we kind of old hands at this. Like we're kind of in that, I don't know, in, in the in the prime of our careers. Um, and I, I think being in this in this movement um, and being in that particular generation is kind of tricky and interesting. But I would love to hear what you think about being in that and how you're finding your path to leadership. I think we need more leaders in this space. You know, Lindsay, I think that when you say to me who in public health works in the built environment is that you know, luckily that number goes beyond my two hands when I'm counting, but a matter of years ago, it didn't. And I question, you know, are the jobs there? Are the career paths there? Are the educational programs there? And I'm really deeply proud of the work that we're doing at the International Building Institute to create jobs, to create education, to create paths um, that we do with our advisors' support. We do with community support to say, let's create a way to pull these leaders into our space. Let's give them a path to do that successfully. But the reality of it is, is that we look at certain trends, like, for example, in the 1970s, um, with the environmental movement, certain leaders emerging around environmental design. Um, many of those leaders are now at a point in their life where they may be looking at retirement. You know, behind that in public health, we see people in industrial hygiene looking at buildings. That was the go-to space if you wanted to study buildings and health. And it was really, you know, decades later that people started saying, oh, obesity in the built environment are connected. But keep in mind, those professionals had already, you know, graduated out of the system. And when I graduated in 2011, having completed my PhD, not everyone was familiar with the concept of built environment and health. I would still give lectures and ask people to raise their hands if they were familiar with it. So you have to understand, it's kind of a phase. And as a result of that, we have gaps. Right? We have gaps between where are the, those leaders at different ages and maybe those in their 40s in particular were sort of seeing this need for more professionals that have been trained across disciplines to be able to speak this language. Uh, because it's a disservice to say, oh, I only study air quality or I only study obesity and to not realize that the building connects them. And to you know, Dr. Frumkin's article um, that was published that Kira mentioned earlier is that he is really pushing for there to be, you know, National Institute of Climate Change and Health. What he highlights is the history of public health being so siloed. And if you look at the Institutes of Health, it was all about the public health problems of the time. It was about cancer as the problem, respiratory health, that's the problem, you know, mental health problem. And it grew out of studying those different problems. Yet the built environment or climate change affects a lot of those in states or in problems. And so it actually is maybe is transdisciplinary in its scope. So that's a lot to say that we have significant gaps in leadership around healthy buildings and healthy sustainable buildings that we need to address. I think we need to create educational paths and programs to entice leaders mid-profession to join us and to not feel that um, they have to have a certain CV in order to do that. We're really trying to look for diversity of talent across different disciplines. Um, I love the chief wellness officers emerging in our space that comes qualified more from the HR background. Um, and this, this is reminiscent of looking at the facility manager and educating and empowering him or her at the beginning of the green building movement. So 
I think there's ways that we can increase and improve the leadership that we have. I think we can fill those gaps. Um, and I hope to lose count of the number of professionals I know within public health that are committed to sustainability and healthy buildings. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I, I hope we, I, it, it is kind of cool to see. I feel like there's a little bit of an increase it's, and I enjoy watching it um, because I feel like every time I, I see someone, like I have a family friend who, who was in the Harvard program, Joe Allen. Um, she was a, one of Joe Allen's students. And uh, when my mother told me that she was, you know, following in this path, I was like, oh, well, then I'll just run into her in the tiny room that we're all in all the time, you know, <laughs> and I, I was sort of like, well, that's random and small, you know, and like, <laughs> my cousin's wife is really into it now. And I'm like, oh, well, I'll see you at the like tiny room that we all occupy. Um, but, but I haven't, you know, and I'm actually kind of happy to know that like, they're off doing the work and, and that it is just getting to be a bigger community. But yeah, in, in every way, it's, um, I agree with you, we need a lot more of it. And, and I think, you know, coming from the building side, one of the things I'm still hoping for, and that I've been working on with my class at Berkeley this year, is uh, literacy on the building industry side about how complex it is to really deal with health. I think COVID has really helped reinforce the point that like, you don't get to be an expert on things that you haven't properly studied. <laughs> but to be honest, I'm sorry, this is going to be my dig at architects of the week. But like, yeah, architects aren't great about <laughs> about knowing when they aren't an expert at something and have to like, <laughs> you know, to go and and get like mid-career education. So I love all of that. I think it's um, I, I think it's all spot on and I hope we see more of it. OK, well, we're running out of time and we want to make sure we ask you one last question that matters to us. And we want to hear your thoughts on, which is who you are inspired by these days, anyone, however many people, doesn't even have to be a person, but tell us what, what gets you going. So I have so many incredible people that I just get a chance to be in their energy, but I will specifically call out Dr. Richard Carmona, the former Surgeon General, we have been honored to ask him to be on our governance council and he accepted. But what I want to highlight about Dr. Carmona or Rich, please call me, is that he has this sort of energy about him that you just can't get enough of. And it's not the, I'm exhausted because everyone's asking me something, or I don't have time for you, or let me you know, rush through this conversation because someone else is more important to talk to. And keep in mind, this man not only is in the former Surgeon General, but he's in everything from a trauma surgeon to nurse to police officer. He's run for Senate. Um, you know, he holds faculty appointments. Literally, his CV is incredible. And I think one of the first jobs we'll talk to you about is, I'll get this wrong, but it's like selling hot dogs or something, you know, just like, you know, so down to earth. And I really, the reason I highlight him is because I think we're all being asked to do more with less. And being worn out and being exhausted and being overwhelmed just to be able to say we did it. And I studied burned out recently and we published a paper on it. And I think in particular women, well, we know it's not particular. We know it. We statistically know, right. That there are more predispositions, particularly for depression and issues around burnout. But it's this idea that can we be a leader that takes it all on? Can we do so with grace? Can we be balanced and that everyone is asking us something, but what can we give them versus what can they take from us? 
And how do you harness the energy so that you always show up ready and present um, for what is needed at the time? And so that's what I'm after. I'm not after what you've done. I'm after who you are in doing so and the energy that you give that's so contagious. And so huge shout out to Dr. Richard Carmona, who I believe just really embodies that. That is a wonderful one and a good place to end, I think. Um, so thank you. Such wisdom, Whitney. It's awesome having you on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, let's go change the world, right? Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> We're, it's, it's that time. <laughs> we have a lot of work to do. Um, all right. Well, thank that time. you. Thank you both so yeah, much. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, that, that is it for this week uh, on Women and Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners, for tuning in every week. It has been a pleasure. We so appreciate having you with us. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.